You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Welcome you to Bite Into It, uh, where we discuss computers, new technology, the internet, games, uh, all the important stuff. Uh, tonight on the show, we'll be levelling up with Snow McNally. Good evening. And we'll also be in tears of laughter with Dan Salmon. Hi, Dan. Hey, hey. Uh, I'll also be joining you. Uh, my name's Warren Davies. Uh, tonight on the show, uh, we're fortunate enough to spend some time with one of the web's most sensible people. Uh, I hope you won't mind describing him as uh, as such. I debated curmudgeonly, but uh, maybe that's a little bit unkind as well. Uh, Majak Sigwowski uh, speaks to us about the web today and what it can be uh, if we keep our wits about us. Um, we'll also be taking a look at Australia's newest technology festival, uh, or as it was called at the time. There's probably uh, four or five newer ones. Uh, Future Assembly was held in Melbourne last week, and we went along to have a look at that. But uh, before we do those things, we'll take a look at what's making news uh, in technology here and around the world. Um, it is a big day for the internet uh, from Oxford's point of view. Uh, Dan, what's going on here? It is. Um, we're, we're getting towards the end of the year, which means that uh, the, the various uh, organisations are naming their thing of the year. I, I, can't, I imagine it's not too long before we get Time Magazine's person of the year and the various 10 to 1 lists of the best ofs. But the Oxford English Dictionary is a bit of a staple. At the end of the year, they do announce their word of the year. And this year, um, amongst a number of um, uh, interesting uh, finalists, the, the the winner has been the... Uh, not a word. Not a word. Not a word. Um, it, it has, in fact, been an emoji. Um, the one that is best described as face with tears of joy. Now, this has given me tears of pain because I like the idea that words are words and emojis are not. Um, but how do you guys feel about this? I'm, give, I'm giving it an emoji. I'm, I'm oh, just get out of the studio. That made me sad. Yeah. That, that, that made me crying with sadness mo- emoji. Yeah. That, that was some fantastic radio too, just putting the <laughs> thumbs up. Yeah, it felt very long. Yeah, I was wondering what was going on there. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, these uh, there is always a, um, a desire to be uh, on trend and kind of cresting the wave of whatever's popular for, for these things. So it, it is a little bit lame in that way, mm. and um, uh, probably a little bit late. But um, you know, I, I think they're acknowledging the importance of uh, symbols and uh, you know s- semantics to, to how we communicate. Absolutely, and I mean, look, it's it's it is a nod. The the whole list of the short list that um, the OED came up with is is a nod to the the prevalence of tech in our lives. There were nine finalists, um, at three of which were specific to do with uh, computers and tech. There was Adblocker, um, yeah. which, as we all know, is a piece of software designed to prevent advertisements from appearing on a web page. There was Dark Web, um, one, one of the, uh, I suppose, buzzwords of the year, uh, with the, the part of the web that's only accessible through various uh, masking softwares, tour, that kind of thing. And Sharing Economy, which is kind of a, a, a kind of a broad brush uh, description of things like Airbnb and Uber, where people are essentially uh, sharing their own stuff using the internet. Um, it, it, something that uh, a couple of people have touched on, which I found interesting, is that the um, kind of word of the year is f- fading into irrelevance, and so, uh, or they feel that the word of the year is fading into irrelevance, and so the Oxford English Dictionary is trying to bring it back, hence emoji. But um, well, one one of my my prefer one of the things I enjoyed was um, uh, Luke O'Neill of Esquire magazine saying Oxford's word of the year is an emoji, and now we're writing about it, and that was the point. Exactly. 
Uh, one of the other things that uh, smacks a little bit of, um, of novelty um, is facial recognition software. Uh, it's been uh, on the cards for a little while now and Microsoft claims to have uh, cracked it. Um, they think they can tell us what we're feeling uh, through uh, a new piece of software. Uh, so you may recall, guys, uh, a, a little while ago there was the age recognition app that uh, Microsoft put out. Um, there was a fair bit of that stuff getting out there on Facebook. Did did either of you guys see that one? I did, but I didn't actually try it out. I was <laughs> afraid that it would tell me that I looked 12, right. and so I just... I, I, I looked twice my age according to that thing. I, I, I looked, yeah, in that, my 60s. That was, was my other fear? Yeah, terrifying. Just It would be too far one way or the other, and I would just cry. It was it was uh, interesting in lots of ways. I did enjoy the fact that Guns N' Roses were women in their sixties. <laughs> that, that, that was pretty nice. But are they not? Uh, well, almost. Uh, so what they've claimed to have done, um, there is a, a, a new kind of um, uh, sort of algorithm that um, learns uh, through uh, matching photos and uh, I guess teaching itself what we're feeling. Um, it believes, uh, Microsoft believes it can actually um, recognise eight uh, emotions. Um, so it's got anger, contempt, disgust, fear, happiness, neutral, sad face, and surprise, which are all uh, apparent on Delta Goodrum's face uh, while judging uh, X Factor. Um, there is one here where it's trying to pick what she's actually feeling, um, which would be, uh, I don't know, um, amazing for all of us. Um, she's coming up as neutral, but I'm pretty sure it's her disgust face. Contempt is an interesting one. Like, I mean, of, you know, the, the eight most used, I suppose, emotions when it comes to a face. I would not put contempt on that list. It might more be which which configurations of muscles are e- easier to differentiate between than um, which ones it thinks are most common. Mm. That would make sense for a robot. So. Yeah, absolutely. As someone who works in games, I'm, I don't know if you ever work with like replicating human faces at all. Or? Not personally, but I have seen very interesting things done with them. Um, unfortunately, not in terms of actually reading people's emotions. Although I really really look forward to the ways that people could actually use this and just have have npcs react to you being like well, who is this clown what are you doing here <laughs> there is a, an interesting one where it gets it wrong um we'll put a, a link to this uh, story up later um with tony abbott eating the onion and he gets a massive happiness rating um, which is really interesting <laughs> hell he's, he's he looks ecstatic in that photo what are you talking about he's got he's kind of got the, the wrinkly the wrinkly happy eyes mm-hmm. but um you know that could just be practice i guess so that, that is interesting. Um, another thing that's interesting is uh, whether spending too much time uh, on screens and, uh, I, I guess, connected and plugged in is, is making us sick. Um, there's been some stuff that's come out on this one recently. Yeah, there's, uh, there's, I, don't, I don't know if cyber sickness is a newly coined term or not, but it's definitely what people have been using to describe the, the phenomenon that it's, it's effectively motion sickness but in reverse. So where traditional motion sickness is your body feeling things and... and because of your your field of vision effectively not changing, your your sense of balance gets very confused. It doesn't know what's going on. Cyber sickness is effectively the opposite, where your body feels nothing, but you're because you're watching a lot of motion or hearing a lot of motion, your body gets the same type of confused, and it translate that translates that effectively as as nausea or or sickness um and it seems to happen a lot with um like when 3d movies started being a thing that was when the like sort of the it people first started noticing it and really talking about it but that's something that is actually i've always felt that i've I've been afflicted with personally because I've I've found it difficult to ever become a gamer because as soon as I look at 
a, scr- a game screen that particularly like anything that's first person. That's one of the reasons yeah. why they put a, a reticle right in the middle. It's not just to help you aim. It's it gives you a center of balance so that whatever you're looking at, you have your one static point, so you can try and focus on that. And it, it helps. It definitely helps. It doesn't doesn't take things away entirely. Mm. And I don't know if you've ever tried any like virtual reality things, but no, I've they, not for that reason. Yeah, they will mess with you a lot worse for because of exactly this. Mm. So. It, uh, it does actually suggest here that uh, 50 to 80% of people are actually affected uh, by these types of sicknesses in varying degrees based on their exposure to, to this type of stimulus. So um, it did find that women are, are slightly more susceptible. And, um, yeah, there's some interesting things around um, what uh, places like the military um, uh, complex, for example, are, are trying to do to uh, make it easier for, for people to, to live in these in these worlds. Um, it's, it's also important for things uh, such as pilots, um, um, uh, space and, and, and all kinds of things that you need to be able to to sort of do these things. So, um, yeah, I, I guess as we kind of um, forge on uh, into our bright and brave new futures, um, it's something we'll all have to get better at. Well, especially if we all plug into the Matrix at any point, we're going to need to find a way to, to get around it. Yeah, maybe that's why Neo had that kind of like um, sort of uh, strange look in his face the whole time. He was just a bit queasy. Um, speaking of being queasy, um, our smartphones are actually making us queasy at bedtime. Um, and there's a suggestion that we need to do something about this. Yeah, it's... Um the smartphones, because they, they want to be really effective in daytime, which is fair because it's, there's nothing more annoying than trying to look at your phone and it's just all, all grey, the manufacturers are, are focusing on putting really bright blue lights uh, for their backlights, which is fantastic because you can see your phone in direct sunlight, but when you try and use that same screen at night, it uh, it tricks your brain, basically, and, and suppresses melatonin uh, and makes your brain basically say, you know what, this is a time to be awake and active and alert instead of sleeping. So our, our screens, including e-readers, because now all of the all of the, the most popular ones are backlit, are are telling our brains you need to you need to focus, you need to be alert and awake, and it's messing up with our, our sleep our sleep cycles and it's messing us up the next day as well. Do you guys have any kind of rules or do you have any ways that you try and deal with kind of phones after lights out or anything like that? I have rules that I don't stick to. Um, it's it's one of those things where it's like uh, more often than You've got not, ideas, Dan. I've got ideas, uh, the, the, uh, thin, thinly veiled suggestions. Um, but it's, I, I mean, I'm guilty of falling asleep on the couch with the light on anyway. Oh. So I, I'm, I'm lucky that I can kind of sleep in any context. But as soon as I, my, my problem with picking up my phone and checking things is that I'll start thinking about them. Yeah, right, like, yeah uh, I've I've always found that the connectivity itself is probably more of a disruption to my my sleep cycle than than any sense of like feeling like my body is is reacting to the light. But I don't I don't know how to change that because we live in a very connected age, and I don't much feel like putting my phone down for an hour before sleeping. True. At the very least, you've got to not check your work, anything to do with work, because that's the first thing you're going to be like, oh, okay, I've got to do this, this, and this, and so, and you you won't sleep. It just doesn't happen. Uh, something that has happened, uh, there's been a nice bit of reissue of, uh, of gear. Um, what's going on here, Dan? Well, are you guys uh, fans of the movie Aliens by any chance? Yes, I am. Okay, well, that's good to know. I actually didn't check that with you before we came to it. I'm glad that you guys both said yes. What is this thing called aliens? What is this thing called aliens? Um, well, when a mummy a date... No, okay. okay. <laughs> um, do you remember seeing the awesome watch that uh, Ripley wears in Aliens, Sigourney Weaver's character? Yeah, that thing is dope. It's got, like, the, the, the flat thing on the side. It yeah. looks really sci-fi. With the buttons, yeah. Like, it's, it's that kind of, like, weird retro-futurism. Mm-hmm. You can now get one. A Seiko have reissued Ooh. the watch, and it's it's not something that was difficult to get back in the eighties, but obviously 
it being 30 years later, it's difficult to find one that's in particularly good condition. But um, the, the watch, and forgive me for mispronouncing it because I will mispronounce it. It's the, oh, God, how do I have, give me one second here. Sorry, guys. I had the wrong screen open. It is an Italian name, and I do apologise. It is Giard, or oh, I can't, I I'm, you can this, give, you can give up on it if you. No, want. no, no. It's it, it's it's. I'm covering for the fact that my screen that my uh that okay, hasn't right. reloaded yet. Um. So it, it is the Jua. Ju, oh God, no, I can't actually pronounce it. Jujaro. Jujaro. The Jujaro. Ju, the Seiko Jujaro Seven A Two Eight Seven Thousand. God, I really covered for myself there, didn't I? Um. Desi- it was designed by an Italian car designer, uh, Giorgetto Giugiarotto, uh, to um back in 1983, and was uh. A, one of the many uh, Seiko watches that uh, James Cameron chose to give to his characters in that particular film. Um, you can it, they you can get uh, original ones for about a thousand dollars on eBay, um, but uh, if you want one that's in mintish condition, it's not exactly the same. There are buttons on the left yep. that aren't available in this new watch, but you you can get it for considerably cheaper than that. Seems like a good uh, Christmas present for that uh, special uh, sci-fi nerd uh, in your life. Hey, it's kind of a, a festival time of year. Um, there's lots going on, uh, obviously with music and uh, with lots of cultural things, and we are in the midst of Melbourne Music Week. But uh, a lot of the biters have been uh, out um, and about uh, going to festivals, speaking to people, and uh, I guess taking a, um, putting their finger on the pulse of, of what's happening, uh, for want of a better cliche. Um, during Web Directions, which was held in uh, Sydney uh, about uh, three weeks back now, uh, Laura Summers was lucky enough to spend uh, a bit of time with uh, Magic Sigwowski. And uh, Magic's written some um, wonderful things uh, over the past few years uh, about uh, human-centred design, uh, how the internet can be. Um, I came across him with uh, a great piece called uh, The Internet with a uh, Human Face. And it was kind of like a, a manifesto to the, the web that we deserve and the that we should all build. And I guess uh, if I do him justice, uh, he's known for um, providing a bit of a sense check to, to how things are developing, what's good for everybody and, and how we should experience the, the web in an ugly, uh, unconnected, um, sometimes uh, awkward uh, world. So uh, we're going to hear now from Laura uh, speaking to Magic at Web Directions. Well, um, to start with, I loved your talk, and I actually will admit to being a bit of a geek fangirl because I read your paper about 100 years of web design, like, maybe half a year ago? Oh. Is that, when did you publish that? Uh, I published that, yeah, fairly recently. I, yeah. gave it, I gave it in 2013, but I think I published it just four months ago or so. Yeah, so I, I think I read it when it, like, ran around the web, like, wildfire, was like, this is great! I've been waiting to hear something like this, because everybody feels a little bit overwhelmed by, like, one innovation in library and spec and new thing after another. For those who haven't read it, it basically draws a parallel between the aviation design industry and the web design industry, and it talks about how a lot of high expectations were placed on the um, future of sonic flight. And is that right? The, the Concorde? What was yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the Concorde, Concorde and, then, uh, and then Boeing's big supersonic thing. That's it, the supersonic. That was the one I was searching mm-hmm. for. And how, in the end, the 747 got the job done the best. And that was actually, you know, maybe not the most exciting or newest technology, but it was, in fact, the right fit for the need. I think that, that strikes a lot of chords for me with um, web design these days. Mm-hmm. So can I ask, like, was there something that prompted you to write that paper? Was it a, like, bunch of experiences, or was there any one new library that made you go, ah, oh, I've had enough? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, 
kind of a thrust of the talk was this this futurism that is making that creates paralysis because if you think that everything is in a state of flux and especially that it's going to change unrecognizably, then what is the point in doing kind of slow, steady work or mm -hmm. uh, you know not having one foot constantly in this future? And I think that's a really uh, destabilizing feeling and demoralizing feeling for people. The, the idea that your work, current work won't be valued because it'll be obsolete almost as soon as it's done. Mm -hmm. And I, when I write talks, I have a lot of stuff that I'm interested in. I'm a big aviation geek, as you can tell from the talk. So I try to look for analogies. My, my mother is someone who always had made crazy metaphors and she would mix them in all sorts of ways and drove me crazy. But clearly I, I inherited it and I also gave her a vividness of expression that I liked, even if I disagreed with her, it would stick in my mind and I would remember these things. So I try to find things that I, that express thoughts I didn't know I had until I tried making, bend the analogy until it starts to break and then tape mm. it up and put it in a talk is my, <laughs> my, my approach. Well, it's good. Like we all, we all need to be like brought outside our context in order to reframe it, right? Like you can get very bogged down in the detail or like the specific little argument you're having. And I think that thinking about things at a systemic level, thinking about things at an industry level or like, you know, outside of like any given project or any given technique or tool um, is helpful. And we do like owe it to ourselves and our clients and the web in general to not blindly follow the next new thing, but to really think a bit about what we're doing and why we're doing it. I, I agree completely. And I also think there's an obsession with novelty and mm. uh, that our industry is dominated by these futurists and visionaries who are almost religious in their thinking. And the, the thing that actually prompted me to write that talk was my discomfort with ideas of the singularity, ideas of total transformation and how everything will be done. These messianic visions that I think uh, dominate the discourse and prevent people from feeling comfortable trying to make incremental changes, substantive mm. little small changes that mm. that will actually matter to people's lives without trying to revolutionize everything at the same time. Mm. We're listening to Magic Sigwowski speaking to Laura Summers at Web Directions. Um, so that's an interesting idea, guys, that uh, Magic believes that we can uh, all add something and we can all add something thoughtfully uh, and with, uh, I guess, being conscious that we're doing something that has to be useful and um, smart and clever, but you don't have to reinvent the web. You don't have to create the next big platform. Uh, how do you guys feel about that? I, I find it an interesting idea. I mean, the way, if, if we're going to be following that, um, we need to start getting out of the mindset of the web is the way that you're going to make a big break financially. I think until people stop thinking, okay, I'm going to, I need to make a huge amount of money. I'll go into web. I'll do a startup. I think that's the driver for a lot of this stuff. And then when, when we, when that kind of, I suppose, I don't want to say hysteria, but when that kind of wave of enthusiasm what uh, kind of levels out? I think is when we're going to start seeing things like that. Well, I mean, if you think about if you think about the big ideas like uh, you know democracy and um, uh, literature and stuff like that, people don't do it with the intention of making something out of it. Um, I mean, you know, writers perhaps might might occasionally do that, but with with an idea like government or democracy, everyone just wanted to get the best possible system and the best possible result. And sure, it didn't always work, and, and there's plenty of faults, but you ended up with a great result. And if you, I guess, start with a, an open platform, it, it can leave it a little bit open for people to jump in and exploit it. So, But it's hard to get that balance between how do we make it free and open and everyone can add stuff to it and everyone can do things and how can we make sure that that's always the case. Interesting. 
Uh, just as a as a creator, I, f- I feel very very differently about this this idea that things need to be useful and need to make a make a meaningful change in people's lives. Um, I do absolutely get where he's coming from, and I and I respect that. But at the same time, I feel like sometimes the creation of a thing is a reason enough for its own existence, and that's that's a whole other other conversation, I suppose. But it it ties in in a lot of the same ways. I think of just um like. We need to create for the sake of it. I mean, exactly, how, how else yeah. are you going to put something out there and investigate it and play with it and learn new things? Exactly, yeah. So, like, not just creating things for financial gain, whether it's a creative work or, or, or um, a more sort of practicality, tech-minded thing. I think ge- generally just creating things because they're things that we want to see rather than just um, things that we think are going to to make a change and, and move us one step closer to to the future, as it were. I think what what kind of change I mean obviously there are flaws with the way society is right now and the way that the internet has influenced you know there are benefits and there are drawbacks are there are there things that you can envisage we could improve on now or is it is it like is it kind of one of those things where it's well we've created all these various platforms various ideas we need a new one to add or is it when at what point do we start refining the ones that we've got at this point I think the important thing is like we have all these fantastic platforms that are not accessible to everyone right now. Like, before we work on improving what we've got, we should probably make what we've got available to more people in, a like, a, a an easy way that doesn't require a huge sacrifice on their part. I think um, more control over the algorithms that dominate our lives rather than five or six people around the world deciding how we experience the internet and mm-hmm. how our networks work and, and what gets put in front of us. I think that would be really good. But um, we might rejoin the conversation. That's a really good point. I've always been of the opinion that as designers, like our job is not necessarily to make a revolution in one fell swoop, but any one piece of work you touch, you at least make it less sucky. You know, like you make the experience for the end users less sucky. Like if it's a form, you try and shorten it and you make the experience better and you make sure that you don't ask unnecessary questions. And if it's um, content delivery, you try not to feed people ridiculous amounts of megabytes, which was your, your topic of your talk for this conference and another really good interesting thing I want to touch on um, but yeah I, I, I totally agree that like we get we get stuck in um, thinking about what we're serving and how we're serving it and whether like the thing we're doing is um, perfect for this experience for this user but then we don't think about the bigger issue of you know this is one small thing in a number of steps in this person's life or a number of steps in the process to achieve an end and like maybe if we can help them get there a little bit faster and not make them relearn the whole thing is that a better outcome you know like and as you say like small steps are easier for people on the end user to to accept like you know if every time you come to a new service um, it's completely different then you have to learn it again and even if learning something is like it's heaps better at the end every time learning an experience can actually be quite frustrating for for humans on the other end you know mm-hmm. they're kind of like why am i looking at this thing again i saw this last week and now it's different mm-hmm. yeah, humanizing technology is a, is a big interest of mine and it's it's something that is not given to us programmers to do we all humanize technology together because we just as people and as citizens family members we use it all the time and we kind of decide collectively how it's going to function in our lives and that process is inherently incremental Mm. for you might remember when mobile phones came out 
we couldn't really decide when it was okay to talk on them at a restaurant, for example. And then it kind of became understood as a consensus. Now we're seeing the same battles over when it's okay to look at your phone. Mm -hmm. But in a few years, we'll Mm -hmm. have a kind of a consensus. And nobody, nobody designs that decision. It just kind of comes out of even something as simple as what do you say when you pick up the, the phone headset. Absolutely, like telephone etiquette. Yeah, that was all invented kind of over a period of years. Mm -hmm. Nobody decreed it. And in fact, Mm -hmm. the the words, I think it was ahoy hoy, Montgomery Burns on The Simpsons says that because that's that's what what, like Alexander Graham Bell suggested be the greeting, but it didn't Mm -hmm. catch. So I think I like that sort of (laughs) stuff because it's great. Yeah, Montgomery Burns has all these uh, (laughs) genuine, like, like things from the past. I don't know where like, those writers find them. Cuban peccadillos that have real anecdotes behind them. Yes. That's great. Yeah, there's some huge nerd on the writing staff for uh, for that character. Totally. <laughs> and like, yeah, exactly. Like talking of um, social acceptability with technology. Like I've heard a lot of people saying that that's the reason Google Glass didn't take off because no one knew like if someone's wearing it, are they recording you? Are they interacting with their glass? Are they mm-hmm. interacting with you, the human? And like it creates this layer of technology between the person and the person they're looking at. And um, those questions of um, acceptability, of permission, of etiquette, you know, there isn't really a standard around that. And I think a lot of people sort of, their gut reaction is, if I don't know, I'm going to assume it's doing something bad. Mm -hmm. Or if I don't know, I'm going to assume that they're not paying attention to me. And I think that's similar to the issue about people looking at their phones in public places. Like, a lot of pushback against that because it's perceived to be, well you know, you're making little silos out of individuals, right? Like, there's there's no human connection, and it's quite impolite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Google Glass thing had an, an additional element that I, I was really happy to see that people um, revolted against it because there was mm-hmm. a moment when it seemed like it might become cool or something like that. But it was it was this effort to bring the world the online world into into the physical world mm-hmm. and the norms of the online world, which are very inhuman. Things like uh, that everything is permanently recorded verbatim. Mm-hmm. Uh, that every, you know, right now we're having a recorded conversation, but there was a whole setup to it. You turn the phone on. We know that it's going on. We also chatted before, and, and if you showed me a transcript of what I said to you, I'd be really creeped out because mm-hmm. we were just chatting. But Google Glass mm-hmm. was attempting to make the entire world fit into this online scheme where everything is actually permanently saved, and I was extremely happy to see that. People, and people were b- belittled for not accepting that this is going to be the future. But mm-hmm. I like the fact that they know they have the right to choose not to be in that future. And I yeah. think even people who don't articulate these thoughts uh, still have them in some form. And that's what repulses them from certain kinds of advertising, certain mm-hmm. kinds of monitoring and certain kinds of, of mm-hmm. use of technology. Especially like when you see how people decide what their kids are going to do. You know, how much screen time, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I think, like, you know, we might be a little bit more liberal-minded for technology when it comes to ourselves, but then all of a sudden we're conservative with our kids. So that's an interesting one there, Uh, the idea that um, we can choose to be in the future or we can choose to be wherever we want to be um, in in the technology that's around us um, is, uh, I guess, really comforting, um, especially to uh, people who don't have access to technology or uh, are unfamiliar with it. Uh, How do you guys feel about where you sit in technology in the people that you know and uh, the technology that you have right now? I'm I'm very much the early adopter mindset. I, I like new things just for the sake of them being new, and I like opting into things uh, at every available opportunity. 
although I am also aware, like something like a Google Glass, it's not just yourself that you're opting into a technology like that. It's everybody around you, which is a lot of the discussion that that was happening um, just then. But um, I'm 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 also aware that that is that is a fairly privileged position to be coming from, and that, that I have the the option to opt into a lot of new technology because there is frequently a uh, an economic barrier to that. So. We're listening to uh, Laura Summers' chat with uh, Magic uh, Sigwowski at Web Directions. Uh, Dan, how do you feel about where you sit and and the people around you? I I, I sit, you know, I'm not an early adopter, I'm probably a middling adopter, but I think my my main concern is um, the broader notions of digital literacy. I think it's great that we can all use these technologies, but we really need to start, particularly if we're going to start looking at, you know, the internet changing the world. There are a huge well, I think it's one in five Australians is not online. That's 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 a big chunk. That's twenty percent, and those a lot per- of them in parliament. A lot of them in parliament. This is true. But um, in in seriousness, a, a, like a large proportion of them, and you know, I would probably say the absolute majority are of low socioeconomic status, and a lot of them do live in social and community housing. Um, we need to we need to start looking at ways that we can reach out to peer. And there are you know various digital literacy initiatives that are um, out there. Um, we need we need we need to empower empower people because you know it is it is a democratizing technology i mean that's that's a very cliche thing to say but it really is and the way that we look at um you know government is moving online um everything that we do job searches uh house searches things like that at, at some point the, the, the government has um set a 2017 deadline the australian federal government i should say has set a 2017 deadline for online first Interactions with things like Centrelink and Medicare and these kinds of things. The heavy users of Centrelink and Medicare are, by and large, people who aren't able to use the internet. This is something that we need to address. We might jump back into it. But I think that's funny because it implies a sort of inherent uncomfortableness with the system. Yes, and 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 we express our discomfort more openly when we talk when we're making decisions for our children because yeah. we feel it more. Yeah, acutely. exactly. And we're we're, we're the lost generation already. Exactly. <laughs> well, we're the transitional generation, right? Uh-huh. Like hanging out with my nephew, like he plays the games on my phone to levels that I simply cannot play at and his sense of like touch and swipe and, you know, like um, interaction behaviors with touch screens is completely intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he doesn't have a vocabulary for that. It's just sort of innate. It's like language. It's like it's as if he had learned ALS, uh-huh. but ALS was like knowing how to use a touchscreen interface. But it's I think it's very interesting because I do think that our generation now is the transitional generation between being like technology natives and being technology learners. You know, like people who consciously, cognitively learn interfaces and choose to engage with them. Um, I don't know if I agree with you. I'm kind oh. of uh, I'm kind of hoping this is a high water mark for. Uh, for technology and that it's all going to be, I don't know, like coal fires and sharpened sticks from now on. I, I'm, really? Yeah. I've, I've, I've really. <laughs> That's a very fight club vision of the future. <laughs> I'm worried, you know, I'm, yeah, a, right. I'm a slob, we're a pessimistic people. But I do think that this, this uh, there was an article in The Onion some time ago about staring at glowing rectangles all day that really <laughs> spoke to me. Like, are, are we genuinely going from this point on to always have just these screens mm-hmm. and devices in our hands or are we going to have something terrible like brain implants or are we going to or contact lenses yes or is it going to be something where we just speak into the into the air and then Siri or its descendants do something for it? none of these futures is appealing to me is my problem so that's why I'm trying to 
Yeah. <laughs> Figure I out was, a way to back out of it. <laughs> I was having um, a debate with a friend about whether or not, um, if you had a personal AI, right, if you had a, a, a thing that lived with you and sort of experienced your consciousness as you experienced it and absorbed all of your inputs and was able, so for instance, you go to a conference and you see a person, you're like, oh, bugger, I knew I've met that person before, but I can't remember. You just get this little alert in your brain that's like, oh, you met that person at Web Directions two years ago and their name is, you know, mm-hmm. Laura Summers. And you can, so it's sort of like a little personal assistant, but only for altruistic means. Mm-hmm. Like, would that make your life better? Would, like, your discomfort with it be outweighed by the benefits of it? And, like, I think it's a really good question because that's that's not a completely inconceivable future. Like, like AI is really good at, you know, it's not good at human empathy, but it is good at, like, understanding and recording data and parsing it and giving it back to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't see that being as completely ridiculous as an idea. Um, but, like, what, would you like that sort of future or would you find that too invasive? It, it's... It's hard to think about in the abstract. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's definitely things that I love about the modern digital world. I like being able to just have an address and find my way using maps and online devices and not get lost all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if I'm a curmudgeon about it, I use it actively. So maybe that would be something I would mm-hmm. I would use as well. When, when we talk about these things in theory, I, I see these Microsoft commercials in my head, all these imagined futures where everything yeah. is a little too bright, a little too spotless. Yeah. And, you know, beautiful people are making requests, like, buy my wife flowers for anniversary. So I have a hard time imagining, like, mm. like, what will this act like when it's broken or, like, when it's not working right? Like, just yeah. how will it really feel to live in that world? And will it be insufferable or will mm. it just be convenient enough to, to not think about? Hey, uh, as we did mention earlier on in the show, it's uh, it's festival time. There's been uh, tech festivals out there. Uh, there are more coming up over summer. Um, we recently got along to Future Assembly. Uh, I do declare we were um, fortunate enough to receive a pass to go along and uh, check this out. So hopefully I will be balanced in my reporting of what went down there. Yes, the scones were really dry and old. It's true at the cafe. Now onto the good stuff. Um, it was... It was a good format. Um, it was at uh, one of the pavilions at the showgrounds. Um, it sort of, I guess, condensed it all into the smaller space that it, it kind of could. So it was a big kind of airy pavilion, one of the new ones uh, up on the kind of the northern side of, uh, of the showgrounds. Um, when I got there, there were um, people playing soccer and those big kind of blow-up um, kind of ball-type things running around, sort of um, uh, knocking each other over and stuff. So you definitely knew you were in a kind of geeky kind of space uh, when you saw that going on. Um, so I, I guess the layout was they had a, a main stage to the left. They had uh, a bunch of stalls and, and vendors uh, with their wares um, in a really kind of cool uh, kind of like sort of um, 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 multi-dimensional sort of paper stands that were sort of easy to set up and, and kind of uh, move around. Uh, a few Teslas thrown in here and there. And uh, then upstairs they had sort of uh, rooms for sort of workshops and, and strategy sessions and, and so forth. Um, they had put a bit of thought into it. Um, there were lots of kind of like beanbags and kind of breakout areas and places for people to mingle and stuff like that. So I think they did a really good job of that. Uh, I went along on the, the first day and uh, I think the first session I caught was around, uh, it could have been the rise of Instagram. So the, the theme of the festival was the uh, Internet of Things and I guess um, being uh, connected, focus on a connected world. So uh, arguably uh, nothing does it better than, than something like the, um, the large social networks. 
Um, it was interesting in the, I guess, getting an insight into their strategy, which was which was super simple. Um, you know, being creative, being about the community, and uh, a third one, um, which I, I do forget because it was so simple. Um, I suppose one question I do have about uh, having someone like Instagram along. Uh, well, it's well, it's great, and everyone's familiar, and everybody uses it. Um, it's not really, uh, I guess, future technology, and it's not something that will, you know, people will be excited about using sort of six months from now or, or a year from now. It's kind of, I guess, looking back to what was emerging tech, you know, a, a few years back. Certainly, people use it in interesting and creative ways. I saw a great kind of blended video today with a guy hovering above the street, which was really fun. Um, but. Uh, I did have a conversation with somebody I bumped into there and they were kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it's stuff we kind of know. There was a little bit of that, but I, I guess like any talk, um, there's there's kind of pearls amongst the stuff that you are familiar with or that you kind of know because it was a festival that um, passionate tech people were at. So um, you kind of, I guess as a speaker or as a sort of session moderator, you had to work hard to give them something that they didn't know. Uh, so Instagram was okay. Um, one of the ones that um, really did blow my mind was a, a panel on uh, genomics, uh, I think I've said that right, which is, I, I guess, personalised medicine um, going forward. So um, it's really interesting that idea that we, we had uh, earlier on of kind of parallel futures and sort of uh, technology developing at sort of parallel times. The stuff they were talking about, it really seemed like something that was going to be happening in 10 years' time and Tom Cruise was going to be helping us figure out how it all kind of happened. But it was actually it was actually in the past. Um, these people sort of very calmly and rationally talking about uh, how technology has changed medicine and how you can uh, profile your DNA and actually look at the um, uh, what your future will be. And um, the very the very idea that there's no such as no such thing as disease, but there's processes that we manage um, that you can dial things up and dial things down based on um, what they can see in front of them um, was very interesting. So uh, full credit to that one, and it was uh, kind of a nice thing. The moderator uh, was great. Uh, my hat my hat off to her. She did a, a great job of managing the sessions and the speakers and so forth, and bringing the furniture onto the stage and, and doing a whole bunch of things. Um, so the one I think on genomics and uh, nutrigenomics uh, was really interesting. Uh, if if you do want to get a takeaway out of it, seventy um, percent uh, they say seventy percent of your future and the experience you have is your genes, and thirty percent is environment. So if you do some basic things such as um, diet and food and looking after yourself, the big one is not smoking. Uh, of course, that's really hard to fix. Um, you can do a lot to kind of um, influence how your genes um, affect your life. So if you are healthier and if you do eat well and if you do do good things, um, it dials up. Well, it kind of um, gives your genes the best help to, to sort of put the best you forward. So that was really interesting. And uh, the other session that I did catch was, uh, I guess, a pure one around the Internet of Things. Um, most of the people presenting um, uh, at the stands and the stalls uh, were showing connected objects and connected things and things that did fun stuff for us. Um, there was, a, I guess, a talk about um, a, sort of a, a product-centric view of how you can do stuff to, to connect things. And I was kind of sitting there in my in my nice beanbag, um, thinking about uh, all the dumb stuff that's going to be pumped out there into the marketplace um, over the next few years. Uh, obviously, already lots of dumb connected objects and, and fridges and, and things that we don't really need to be that smart. Uh, I'm sure Magic would sort of agree with that sentiment. Um, so. I was kind of left wondering who's going to be policing this and who's going to be making sure we don't get all this um, actually really dumb crap out there um, making our lives harder. Um, if you think about just some of the devices that we do use at the moment, how um, how awkward they can be and how um, even things like the Apple Watch, which um, most of the people I know that have used it are really... Um, I guess confused about the settings and the alerts and the way notifications come through to you. It's actually really intrusive rather than being this kind of nice, um, uh, kind of subtle way of managing what's going on uh, in your life. 
Um, I took a look upstairs. There was a like a huge session. Um, I, I guess UX is kind of like the the hot job, um, or has been for a little while now. There was literally like half of Melbourne crammed into a session on on how to create a great experience for people. You literally could not move. So I went upstairs, and it was like being in a sauna. Uh, and I went downstairs again. But the great thing is, people are, are hungry to learn, and, and we're, we're keen to check that out. Um, yeah, I think overall it was it was pretty cool. Um, uh, I think it was their or was their first year. Um, I would definitely go back again. And um, yeah, I, I think with a bit of planning, I, I think one thing that was um, would be nice would be to separate the stage and the acoustics from what's going on with the general chatter in the hall and and sort of people just mingling and mixing. But um, yeah, overall, I think for a first festival, it was um, it was a pretty classy effort. There's another festival that's coming up that is um, something we should talk about as well. Um, Snow, what's What's happening with this conference or festival that you're interested in? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, I, I do need to, before I start talking about this, I, I probably do need to disclose that I, I am, in fact, a, a guest of honour at this um, uh, convention. So just, just slightly, in case. Slightly biased. <laughs> Ever so slightly. Okay. Um, but I, I would be I would be saying the exact same things anyway. So what is, what is coming up in uh, it's, it, the, the, the convention itself is not uh, until early next year, uh, but uh, there is a Kickstarter running for it now, which is why it is, it is very relevant. And it is mm. uh, GX Australia which is um, run with a tagline, Everyone Games, and it is uh, Australia's first uh, queer and diversity-focused uh, gaming convention, which is really, really important. Um, we haven't really had a chance to have something like this before, and it's 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 just a chance for, for everybody from, from all walks of life uh, to get together and share a passion for gaming and, and geekery in a place that is very, not, not just, just uh, open and welcoming, but actively in support of... Uh, of anyone and and everyone and um like i said there is a, a kickstarter running for it now to uh to you know lock in the the, the funding for that so we can get the best you know the best possible venue and the, the best possible um you know experience for everyone who goes and you can just jump on kickstarter and search for gx australia unfortunately there is not a very convenient link but i will tweet it right after the show at snow mcnally is me i'll try and get the official account to tweet it as well um and by it's at, at gx australia i think it is it absolutely is yeah um and by backing it you you can lock in for yourself like some there are there are free games and cheaper tickets and all sorts of cool stuff so it looks like it's actually lining up pretty nicely with the Mardi Gras in Sydney next year as well. That so is very intentional. Seems yeah. like a pretty good kind of double if you can mm-hmm. um, get yourself into to Sydney to enjoy that. Um, any particular things that you'd be keen to see? Just quickly, what would you like to see at, a, at sort of Melbourne's first sort of queer games festival? Well, there, there will be a lot of uh, a lot of very interesting and notable creators there talking about like stuff that they're doing, stuff that is interesting. Mostly, it'll be a great chance to spend spend some time with people who are people who are like minded um, and and make new friends, make new connections. Um, there there are a bunch of uh, like very impressive guests that you can sort of um, check out on the on the Kickstarter um, and just like more are being announced on an ongoing basis and. Yeah, mo- like mostly it's about the community and about the experience, and um, yeah, that's. Do you uh, do you expect um, soccer in uh, large sort of plastic block balls will, will be part of that? Will there be actual gaming, like like physical gaming as well as kind of you know? Oh, um, abso- absolutely! Yeah, there is um, there there is a potentially more diversity within the, the the queer gaming creating community than the um, sort of more mainstream one. So you will you will be. Uh, saturated with new and interesting and fun ways to interact with with games and with people so sounds pretty sweet 
Uh, thanks for being with us. We've enjoyed uh, talking to you about uh, all the things that's uh, going on in the tech world right uh, right now and coming up over summer. Uh, thanks to our guest, uh, Majek Sikowski, and to Laura Summers for having a chat with him. Uh, we've been bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. Uh, you can find all our stuff online. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.